I remember the first day that I got my license, and I was in a big mad rush to get it. And after I got my license, I uh, took our car out, and I said, I want to go out and, and go for a drive with my friends. And my parents let me borrow the car. And it was a 1980s Chevy Caprice station wagon. It's about 15 tons of metal out of Detroit. 35 feet long. I don't know. It seemed like that anyways. I mean, it was one of those, it was one of those old station wagons where the, the, the hood ornament was like if it was a foggy day, you couldn't see the hood ornament. It was that long, the hood. It was just like massive. Every time you turned a corner, you know, that kind of, I want you to get a good image of that in your mind. And I was dropping my friends home and I passed his driveway and he said, no, no, that's my house. You passed my house. I said, no problem. I'll just back in. And so I grabbed that gear shift, which was on the column. It was very loose. And I tried to put it in reverse. That found it. And I backed in, and then I heard a noise, and it went like this. Because I looked over my shoulder as I started to back in my friend's driveway. Massive dent across the door. The... Rear view, uh, the, the, the side view mirror was bent upwards like this, staring into the heavens. And I mangled this door. This is the first day I'm basically, you know, uh, allowed to have the car. I get home, and, you know, my parents forgave me for that. Um, but there was still the matter of the door, and there was still the matter of the mangled mirror. You see, forgiveness is one thing, but absorbing the cost is another. Because you can forgive... But there's still a debt. There's still damage. There's still the impact of the infraction. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to absorb that. This morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, which is the text we've been walking through over and over, spiraling around it, going deeper into it. It's, the, it's a parable that Jesus teaches, and it's the third in a series. It's really one parable, but it's a third image, a parable of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons. And here we are in Luke 15. We're going to look again at the lost son, the younger one, famously known as the prodigal. And we're looking at this because it gives us great insight into the extravagant forgiving grace of God. It gives us insight into how he extends forgiveness. But it also teaches us some things about how forgiveness means there's a debt that's being absorbed. And so we're looking at this because not only does this text give us insight into how God welcomes us with forgiving grace, but it also gives us insight into the community that Jesus creates by his forgiving grace. Luke chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 11 through 24, this text we've been working through. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens in that country, who sent him off into the field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Now, context is critical for us to understand Jesus' teaching. When Jesus teaches about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and this lost son here, he's not standing at a podium addressing his disciples. He's sitting at a table with people who the religious crowd would not give the time of day to. The religious leaders are looking at the community that Jesus is building, and they're scandalizing Jesus. Jesus is sitting there eating Uh, with people who are up and out and down and out. And the religious leader are saying, that is not the kind of community we are about. That's why Jesus is teaching us. That's the context. The religious leaders look at who Jesus is communing with and they say, we're not about that. Which ironically is precisely what Jesus is about. That's why we have this teaching. So this is the context. And I want us to zoom out so we can remember that. Because... Jesus is about people from every walk of life, whether they are down and out like drunks and prostitutes, or whether they're up and out like very wealthy tax collectors who were lost and are now found. Jesus is about having them gather around him to find rescuing grace, to find rest for their anxious souls, to be renewed by his grace, to be reformed by his grace. This is what Jesus is doing. Now there's a book written by Tim Keller which is about recovering the heart of the Christian faith. It's called Prodigal God. I reread that book to prepare for this series. I've been borrowing heavily from it. If you've read the book, you've been recognizing that as I've been teaching this. Because what it provoked me to do was look back at Luke 15 and and notice two things that I hadn't seen before. Notice that, first of all, there's what God's grace is for us individually. And I hope that week in and week out, the preaching of Christ is ministering to your heart individually. But the second thing we get from the story is what the grace of God and the extravagant forgiveness builds corporately based on the context of what Jesus was doing, what he was creating in community. So the kind of community that Jesus was building around that table is the community that Jesus is building today in his church. Right here, right now, downtown Kitchener-Waterloo. That's what he's building here. All across the city and all the other gatherings where Christ is being preached and all these other churches, across denominations, across cultures, globally, Jesus is still today building that community that he was building around that table. And so, as his teachings on grace and forgiveness go deeper and deeper into our hearts, we will increasingly be the kind of people who desire to build that kind of community that Jesus was building. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Is that the Father extends forgiveness toward us, the Son accomplished forgiveness for us, and the Spirit empowers forgiveness from us. Look at the first thing this morning, which is the Father extends his forgiveness toward us. So this word prodigal in your Bibles, it says the prodigal son or the reckless son. In the Greek, it's the word asatos, which means extravagant and over the top. 
So the son was being extravagant and over the top in a very immoral way, but the father was being extravagant and over the top in a very gracious and forgiving way. And what Jesus is provoking us to see is that kind of extravagance. It was that extravagance that made the religious leaders turn their nose up and said, we're not interested in building that kind of community. We don't want to be a part of that. And so it's in direct contrast what Jesus is doing to what those folks deserved and the community of, of worship that Jesus continued building today in his church is in direct contrast of what we actually deserve. So the father extends his forgiveness toward us. How did he do that? How does he do that? If you look at his posture in verse 20, the posture of the father, he sees his son from a long way off, and in the Greek, the literal translation is, he falls on his neck and he kisses him. That's how the Greek reads. He just, he's so excited, he just falls on his neck and he kisses his son. That's his posture. How does the father extend forgiveness? His posture is not waiting on the porch, arms crossed. Here he comes. Well, we're going to make him walk all the way, and he better be groveling, and he better know what he did was wrong. What an idiot! Here comes the idiot! He probably spent all the money, and he better not have the audacity to come back here and ask me for more money. None of that's going on in the heart of the Father. At all. Oh, I'm going to wait till he gets to this porch, and then the son comes to the porch and he goes... Right? How many of you, adults, had parents who would say to you, you came home late, you did this thing, or whatever, they say, we'll talk about this in the morning. That's the worst! That's the pre-punishment before the punishment, because now you get to spend all night fantasizing and imagining in your mind what your punishment's going to be. And then you lay in bed and you spend all night, your heart is in turmoil, as you're having all these imagination conversations with your parents. And then they're going to say this, and I'm going to say that, and they're probably going to say this, so I'm going to say that. It's It's terrible! There's no, we'll talk about this in the morning. The posture of this father is pouncing, running, kissing love. It's radical, it's extravagant, it's undeserved, it's prodigal. Because it's the opposite of what the son deserves. This is how the father extends forgiveness towards you, church. Every day. This is how he extends grace and forgiveness for me, for this preacher. Every day. The father doesn't wait to see what will come out of his son's heart. The Father creates an inviting atmosphere for repentance to come easily from the Son's heart. Because it's a lot easier to say, I've sinned against you, when you're being kissed, than it is to say, I've sinned against you, when you're being clobbered. And look at the heart of this Father. It's radical. It's it's amazing. The Father doesn't wait. The Father initiates. It's a vivid picture of God's heart. We are all here today, this morning, because the Father came running towards all of us in grace. While all of us were still a far way off. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still a far way off, Christ died for us. None of us are here because we were more humble than our neighbor. None of us are here because we're smarter than our neighbor. None of us are here because we've got the ethical or moral high ground more so than our neighbor. We're all here by grace. All of us. We were all a far way off. We're all here because God's kissing, pouncing grace got us here. We all have a story to tell about how we ended up here. It's amazing. It's extravagant. I had two conversations this last week with two different people, neither of whom have faith in Christ. Very different people. Sitting down with the one guy having coffee, other guy getting my hair cut. Because when you're getting your hair cut and they say, what do you do for a living? That's like hitting a ball off a tee, right? I mean, you're obviously going to get to the gospel. He can't go anywhere. He's cutting my hair. You know, so. 
I mean, I suppose he could, but that would be really bad customer service. You know, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about religion with this guy. So, anyways, just you know, he was very open. He was super open, uh, and we're talking about, and I'm and I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the difference between the the cultural religious idea about church or Christianity or whatever, and I'm talking about Jesus with this guy. It's not my job to decide if somebody is somehow too far off. It's above my pay grade because all of salvation history teaches all of us are far off. Everybody is far off. I'm, I was far off. God specializes in those who are far off. And so we don't withhold the gospel from people who in our judgment might appear to be somehow, you know, so, so far off or a long way off. Because that's the Father's extravagant, forgiving grace that gets extended specifically to those who are still afar off. But I think when I talk with folks who really struggle, maybe you can identify with this, struggle with sharing their faith, it's not because they don't love Jesus. I mean, of course we love Jesus, but it's because there's like an internal judgment conversation on this person being like, I don't know, are they, do they seem like the person that's really close to the porch? You know, they're like one inch from the porch steps, and if I share, you know, the gospel of, of hope in Christ, they're going to be like, they're going to believe, or do they seem, I don't know, they seem really far off. It's not, hey, that's above our pay grade. The Father specializes in the far off. This radical, extravagant grace. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're, and you're newer to the scriptures, or you're newer to Christian faith, and you're thinking, well, what do I really need to be forgiven from? I mean, I'm a good person, I love people, I try and love my neighbor, I'm trying to basically live a good life. And I'm not doing anything crazy immoral. I'm not stealing from people. I mean, what, what do I need to be forgiven from? This might be your, your question. Well, here's the, I'll, I'll give the answer really quickly. It's that God's, God's law, what God is actually requiring from all of humanity is really two things, and Jesus summarized it in this way. He gave two commands. The first command enables us to flourish, and the second command enables society to flourish. The first command is that we're to worship God ultimately. And none of us do that. Even the Christian church doesn't do that perfectly. We have moments where we worship God ultimately, and then our heart wanders, and we worship something else ultimately, and we, we wander back and forth. But, I mean, we love him, but we, we can't keep that law perfectly, which is the way it's supposed to be kept. Loving God ultimately. And the second thing is loving our neighbor perfectly. Loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Nobody does that. It doesn't matter what your worldview is. It doesn't matter whether... You know, you're a person of faith or non-faith. I mean, nobody loves their neighbor as much as they love themselves. We, have, we might have moments where we do, but we don't live there. And that includes the Christian church. So the forgiveness that we need is our inability to keep God's law. But it's not just about rule keeping. You think, oh, okay, well, then if we just try harder to keep God's law, then I don't need this extravagant grace you're talking about. Well, it's that it's not that we... It's not that we intellectually disagree with God's rules in our heads. It's that we internally are inclined as humans to self-rule in our hearts. And so, if we're not worshiping God as ultimate, we're going to be worshiping uh, the created. So, left, left to our own, all of us are far away off. Left on our own, we'd all be a far away off. Because nobody seeks God. The, the human condition, the, the inclination of the human heart is to be God. Be our own God. And so all of us are naturally inclined to do that. So God shows his love by this. While we were still in that condition of wanting to be God, while we were still a long way off, all of us, he leaves heaven's porch. 
and he runs after us. And he does that through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Father extends forgiveness towards us. Let's move on to the second thing, which is uh, really how did he do that? And it's that the Son accomplishes forgiveness for us. So this prodigal in the story, he, he really wrongs his father in two different ways. He wrongs him financially and he wrongs him uh, socially. On the financial side of things, he says, you're dead to me, give me my inheritance, and he takes it and he goes, and then he permanently diminishes the economic uh, status of the family, right? So the natural assumption would be, well, I should pay this back, right? So the prodigal's posture towards the father is not, I need grace. He doesn't come to the, when the father jumps on him and kisses him, he doesn't say, Father, have mercy on me, I need grace. He doesn't want grace, he doesn't want mercy. He says, hire me. I'll pay it back with my great life. I'll pay it back with my good works. I'll be a good person. I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll do, you know, you, you know I'll do these things. And so I want to zoom out again. Zoom out. Why is Jesus saying this? Why does Jesus put those words in the mouth of the prodigal? Hire me. Zoom back out. The religious leaders believe that exact thing. The religious leaders are relating to God on a basis of earning through their work. The Pharisees believed and taught that your vertical relationship with God was incomplete without horizontal action. That's what they believed. That's what they taught. That is dead wrong because the Savior in that equation is you. So Jesus puts these words in the mouth of the Son to say, Listen, your horizontal actions are not completing a vertical relationship with God because that would make you your own savior. You are not hired hands. You are children by grace. So by having the father in the parable give the son a robe and give him a ring, Jesus is teaching that your salvation is by grace alone. It's accomplished by grace alone and it's assured by grace alone. There's no hire me back. And so, kids, I'm going to explain it to you this way because maybe you kids are thinking of this I'm talking about inheritance and earning, and it's complicated. I'll give you a different picture. When I was very young, my si- my young- one of my younger sisters, Alicia, she was super young. She was probably six years old. We were at church. My mom started the car, turned the heater on because it was the winter. We're in the parking lot. Somebody caught her attention. She got out of the car and started talking just outside the car. My sister, Alicia, jumps in the front seat, gra- accidentally grabs that gear shift that I talked about earlier, puts the car into gear, and the car slowly starts to roll in the church parking lot, very slowly, two kilometers an hour. It was like that episode from Bob's Burgers. Ah! The car was just moving very, very slowly. And we were all in the car, oh my goodness, and somebody, one of the guys uh, who was standing in the church parking lot saw it, and he ran in and he put his foot on the brake and everything was fine. Now let's change the story. After church today, you kids get in your parents' car, and you put it in gear, and it bangs into this wall. And you smash into this wall and you wreck the entire car. And your parents see it happen and they run toward you. And they jump on your neck and they're kissing you, kissing you. They're so thankful you're alive. And you say to your parents, I'm so sorry about the car. I'll pay you back. How are you going to do that? How are you going to pay them back? If the car costs $20,000 and you create a, start a, a lemonade stand at 50 cents a cup, that's 40,000 cups of lemonade. You have to sell. But school is starting on Tuesday, which means you only have tomorrow, because today is the Lord's Day. You've got to relax and chill. You don't go work today and make money and take care of yourself. So tomorrow, I did the math for you. You have to sell 1,666 cups of lemonade an hour on Monday to pay back the $20,000 car. It's not going to happen. You can't do it. 
It's impossible. That's the point. So God doesn't relate to us like, you know, make it up to me. It's his great forgiving grace that he accomplished for us through Jesus. But the second debt, it wasn't financial at all. It was an emotional debt. That's why he uses the language. If you look at verse uh, 21, he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The reason he uses that language is because in verse 15, it says he's feeding pigs. Remember that? Well, Jesus creates the story that way on purpose because in the ancient world, if you're feeding pigs, the Pharisees, who was the audience, the recipients of this teaching, they would have known, man, this guy abandoned his faith. This is totally embarrassing. He's living contrary to the way that he was raised. So he's a total embarrassment to his father, and his father's now losing social status and social equity. See, we live in an individualistic culture, so our reputations matter today, but they still matter in an individualistic kind of a way. It's your reputation. Whereas in the ancient world, in an honor-shame culture, your reputation mattered in a very communal way. So what the son did devastated this father's life and livelihood and reputation in the community, lost social status, total embarrassment, total humiliation. See, when you go to the grocery store or go to the gas station, you don't care if the manager of the grocery store or the manager of the gas station has a great relationship with his kids. You need milk, eggs, and gas. And the people that you're doing business with, your clients, they care about quality of service, they care about uh, quality of product for, for services uh, you know, paid and rendered. That's what they care about. They're not going to stop doing business with you whether your kid is on the honor roll or whether your kid drops out of school. That's not, they, that might matter in a per, kind of a peripheral way, but in individual society, we separate those things. In fact, in most of your places of work, they're like, don't bring your family stuff in here. They want a total separation. You're here, it's corporate, it's work, it's business, and your family stuff is over there. But in the ancient world, that was totally mixed. So by the, by the son going off and doing this radical thing, he, it wasn't only a financial impact on his father, but it was like this humiliation and devastation that the father would now have to live with for the rest of his life in the community. And the Pharisees knew that, which is why Jesus teaches it this way. So there's this huge humiliation, this humiliating emotional impact, which is why the son doesn't even... That's why the son says, hire me. There's no way I can be your son. I've been such a humiliation to you. There's just no way you could have me back in this way. Don't have mercy on me. Hire me. And what is the father's response to that? No response. What does the father say about hire? Nothing. How many of you know that no response is a response? How many of you know if you go home this afternoon and you say something to your spouse and they, they don't say anything to you, they're saying something to you? Right? The, when, when he says, hire me back, the father turns to, doesn't even acknowledge the hiring. Do you see this? Jesus is like, this is not how grace works. He turns and he says, bring the robe, bring the ring, kill the calf, have the party. This is a glorious picture of how God relates to you, of what Jesus has accomplished for you, church. God is not interested in getting something from you God wants you. He loves you. Verses 21 and 22 there, that contrast I just gave you, that's the beating heart of the Christian faith. Hiring me so I can make it right is met with get my child a robe and a ring and a glass to raise. I made it right. God has made it right. So maybe you're new again to the scriptures and you're thinking to yourself, well... I thought we were supposed to obey God. Well, we are, but it's not for the reason that most people think. Of course we obey God, but 
there's no earning in it. It's not about earning. It's about imitation. And so we're not obeying our Father like a hired hand so we can earn salvation. Our obeying is about imitation. It's about loving. It's about, it's about desiring Him. We obey our Father because we want to resemble our Father. That's the Christian faith. The reason the New Testament is filled with calls to imitate Christ is because imitating Christ is precisely what a heart set free by grace wants to do. Being covered with the grace of Christ is what the gospel is, but desiring to be imitators of Christ is what the gospel does. So we're thankful that Christ's grace covers us, therefore we desire that Christ's likeness be formed in us. And Romans, Galatians, and 1 John all teach the same thing about this. They say, listen, if you think grace means that you get to say, come and save your stale Lord, you don't understand grace. It's God's running, kissing, pouncing love towards us that produces the desire to imitate Christ. It doesn't produce a desire to live free from Christ. Now, kids, look down in your notes, and you're going to see there's a picture of a little kid mowing the grass. Do you see that? This is what I'm talking about, about obedience to God being about imitation and not earning, okay? That little kid mowing the grass, that's my nephew James. Now, if you look very closely, you're going to see that's a plastic lawnmower. And if you look even more closely, you're going to notice the lawn is already cut, okay? His dad cut the grass, so there's no more work to be done. In other words, it is finished, and now there's James. Wanting to be just like his dad, with his little plastic lawnmower, following in his dad's tracks. That is New Testament obedience. Is James helping with the lawn? No, it's finished. But he is joyously following in his dad's footsteps because he wants to be like his dad. That's New Testament obedience. The grass is cut. (laughs) That's what the son has accomplished. It is finished. James is not cutting the grass, hoping his father will take care of him. He's taken care of. He wants to resemble him, and that's Christianity. And so Jesus is the father in this story. He humiliated himself by running towards the inferior, even though he was superior. He leaves the porch, and he does this. And in the ancient world, he wouldn't do this. Little boys, little boys run. They hike up their skirts and run in the ancient world. But patriarchs did not hike up their skirts and bare their legs and run. They did not do that. But our God humiliated himself. And he didn't just bare his legs on the cross, but he was stripped bare by a Roman centurion on the cross. He was disrobed so that we could be robed, and his nakedness covers all of our shame. And so this prodigal returns with this religious mindset. He says, give me a rake, but they give him a ring. And the religious mindset always says, give me a rake. But the gospel says, no, you have a ring. Now go out there with your plastic lawnmower and imitate your father. It's finished. And so this father in the story is filled with compassion. And the word compassion means to be moved from the depths with love. That's what it means. And do you know, the word compassion is used to describe Jesus more than any other word in the Gospels. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the thing you're going to find the most that describes Jesus is, and he was moved with compassion. So the father in the story, the, the scriptures are inviting us to see this father in the story the one that's running off the porch, the one who incarnates himself and comes uh, to save us, is Jesus. He's the one who, who uh, comes with that extravagant grace. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says it himself. He says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen, if you've seen me, 
You've seen the Father. That's what he says. And so he is the Father in the story. It's the good news. Jesus is the God who left heaven's porch, and he wrote himself into human history, and he utterly humiliated himself in 33 AD on a Roman cross as he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And three days later, that tomb was empty. And Roman antiquity and Jewish antiquity and the scriptures all tell us that that tomb was empty. And Rome never produced a body, which would have been the easiest thing for Rome to do in the first century to stomp out these annoying little group of people that were believing in Jesus. I mean, it would have been the easiest thing for them to do, but they did not do it because he rose from the grave and his humiliation was turned to exaltation. I mean, this is Rome, totalitarian regime for a thousand years. Pretty easy to stomp it out. A little ragtag group of, of disciples didn't steal the body. They were hiding for their lives behind closed doors. When Jesus, the resurrected Christ, came and knocked, they weren't expecting him. That's what the scriptures say. Our God came and humiliated himself. Our God came in great grace, and he moved towards us. Jesus came to accomplish forgiveness for us, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And so if you believe this gospel... That Jesus lived the perfect life you couldn't live and he died that atoning death and his resurrection means that your death is not final. And that means that before God, your track record has been totally absorbed. And you've been given Christ's perfect track record on your behalf. And, that's, and that seal, that signet ring, that seal for you is your baptism. The seal, the family seal for that, that, that prodigal was the family ring. That was the seal. Your seal is your baptism. The sign that you're the child, that you're a child, you're not a hired hand. Which leads to the final thing this morning, as we prepare to close with this. And it's that the Spirit empowers forgiveness from us. So the, the Father extends it towards us, and the Son accomplished it. This radical humiliation of what He was willing to do for us. But the Spirit now propels it. How, after everything that the prodigal son did, could the Father actually run and kiss Him? I mean, what was going on in the heart of the father that when his son was still a far way off, he ran? What was going on? Here's what I would submit. What Jesus reveals is that the whole time the son was lost, the father was kissing him in his heart. So that when he actually did come, he kissed him in reality. And I'm going to be honest with you. As I started to look at this text and started to consider the extravagant forgiving grace of the father... And I started to think about how I forgive. I got to tell you, my initial reaction when somebody hurts me, when somebody devastates me, when somebody wounds me, is not to kiss them in my heart. I clobber them in my heart, but I don't kiss them in my heart. In fact, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I've had lots of times where I'm driving in the car with no stereo on, just left with my thoughts, and I do lots of clobbering in my heart towards people who have hurt me and wounded me in the past. And I have to like stop myself and recalibrate and like, oh God, forgive me. I can't be the only one in here who's done that. But the father was kissing his son in his heart, so when he actually showed up, the father actually kissed him. And so here's what, what we need to see, is that you know a, a good gauge for unforgiveness is that if thinking about that person and thinking about their demise or their unsatisfaction or their failure or them getting theirs makes us happy, then we're, we're not forgiving. And as I was reading this, I was realizing, you know, the reason the Father could actually extend that kind of forgiveness was 
while the sun was still afar off, this is what was going on. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he uses the same grace that rescued us to heal us. And God's grace heals us from this chronic need, though I mean it's very natural, to hold people to their liability, to make people pay, to make them pay emotionally or make them pay socially or make them pay in some way. The, the Spirit empowers this. Forgiveness means I'm not holding this person liable for their debt. I'm not going to make them pay. And you might be thinking to yourself, Paul, this is impossible. You don't know what these people have done to me. And I'm not being trite about pain. Everybody has pain. You have pain, and I have pain. But if you think I'm talking about trying harder to forgive, then you're right, it is impossible. I am not talking to you about trying harder to forgive by the power of your will. I'm talking about a liberating freedom to forgive by the power of God's grace. Because absorbing the pain from someone who has wronged you is impossible unless you have some place to take that pain. It is impossible unless you have access to a power that can heal you from that pain. So I'm using the word absorbed because the debt doesn't go away when you forgive somebody. When somebody wrongs us and we forgive them, it doesn't make what they did right. It doesn't make what they did okay. It doesn't make what they did any less devastating. We're still living in the impact of their actions. So there's a debt that needs to be absorbed. And God's grace heals us from our own guilt, from our own shame. And it sets our hearts free so that in our freedom of the gospel, His grace can propel our forgiveness. So that we are free from inflicting pain and retaliating against those who've hurt us. And we will forgive by absorbing the pain from those who've hurt us. And then we will live free by giving that pain to God by going to God in prayer and releasing it to him and praying and crying out that he heals our hearts Jesus is so extravagant with his forgiving grace towards us he calls us to this forgiveness that's unnatural because in the world we live in you stay on the porch and you wait and maybe if they deserve it and maybe if they grovel enough and maybe if they slide their way up the steps, we'll be like, okay, maybe I can forgive you. Maybe I can release you from this liability. Maybe I'll stop holding it over your heads. But the grace of God that ran towards us off the porch, it reforms us into people who increasingly, over the course of our lifetime, will be willing to run off the porch and extend undeserved forgiveness. And on our own, that's utterly impossible. It's impossible. It's only by God's grace, by the healing work of, this, of, the, of the gospel in our own hearts. Because the law of God that commands us to forgive is propelled by the grace of God that reminds us we are forgiven. And if we forget the extravagance of God's grace towards us, then we won't confess our sin, we'll cover it. And we won't forgive others of their sin, and we won't be willing to absorb the pain. We'll live in anger, and we'll hold them liable forever, and we'll just keep inflicting more pain. The way we continue in our faith, church, is the way we began. By grace. And so the father in the parable, he stretches arms out wide to hug the son. Jesus Christ at the cross, he stretches arms out wide to hug us. And that's how Jesus has always built his church, and that's what he's building here among us, a community that's willing over and more and more over the course of our lifetime 
to do the same. To be a community where reconciliation can actually happen. Reconciliation can actually happen because we're willing to be honest about our sin, confess our sin, forgive the sin of others. Because the extravagant forgiving grace of God does not just apply to you individually, but it applies to all of us corporately. It's Christ's church. He's building the same community today that he was building around that table when the Pharisees scandalized him. That's what, he's, that's what Jesus is up to. That's what he's building. He's building us into a community that will not force people to carry the sins of their past with them forever. Because, church, we have been released from the sin of all of our past forever. Let's pray.